Last year, 2020, was quite an eye-opener for all of us. Multiple crises, political instability, the pandemic, structural racism, the economic crash, and climate change all collided to make for a year like none other. It's safe to say that we are all traumatized to various degrees as individuals by the events of last year. We are also collectively traumatized as a society. We hear about and experience climate change with increasing frequency. It haunts our every day. At times, we have to just turn it off. But can we? If 2020 was like none before, it will, unfortunately, be like many years to follow. 2021 is the third year of the Taos Land Trust podcast. We've talked a lot about climate change over the past three years, but this year our focus will be entirely on climate issues. What do we face here in New Mexico and in the Southwest, and how can we adapt? Increasingly, and core to our mission at the Taos Land Trust, we are committed to helping our community and our region adapt to climate change. This year, 2021, we will explore the challenges we face and move on to solutions and adaptations that are available to us. I hope you'll join us this year. This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. A longtime environmental journalist based in Albuquerque, Laura Pascas's coverage of environmental issues has appeared in a wide range of publications, including the Santa Fe Reporter, High Country News, KUNM, and others. Laura is the producer of New Mexico in Focus's series, Our Land, New Mexico, Environmental Past, Present, and Future. In 2020, Laura published her first book, At the Precipice, New Mexico's Changing Climate. I consider Laura to be an expert on New Mexico climate issues and particularly on water. And I associate Laura very much with the state of the Rio Grande, um, our main river in the state. So, Laura, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. And I want to say, first of all, congratulations on this book. I, I know what it's like to write a book, and this is an awesome book. And yeah, congratulations. Thank you so much. So we're recording this today on Tuesday, February 23rd. And this morning, um, one of our representatives, um, Deb Holland, has been before the Senate in her confirmation hearings to uh, become the head of the Department of Interior. And she's, she's the first Native American nominated to, um, to this post. And um, she's uh, uh, faced some, some tough questioning some, and some tough criticism. And I, I think you've been watching the hearing, and I'm really curious what your, what your takeaway is so far. Yeah, boy, that was kind of a rough hearing to watch this morning. As someone who's like really been following the research on climate change for almost two decades now, to hear some of the senators who were questioning Representative Holland and to hear the, the tenor of their questions really um, kind of uh, so aggressively pro energy development and fossil fuel development, that it really made me kind of sad that we're still at this place in the United States where so many people in positions of power are still refusing to take climate change seriously and to take seriously 
the fact that every minute we waste in not addressing climate change is, you know, moments stolen from future generations. So, you know, I was really excited as a New Mexican, as someone who has interviewed Representative Holland so many times. I I am very proud of her um, for her nomination and, and for the work that she does. And it was it was a little bit hard to watch many of the questions, but also a reminder of the lack of diversity in the U.S. Senate. I mean, it's just extraordinary. It, it is. I I don't I don't know if this is fair to ask you, so you can you can absolutely refuse to answer this question if you want. But you know, one of the things that I've noticed with the treatment of her, there's a certain amount of uh, of disrespect that I feel has been cast her way uh, by certain senators. Um, that I I struggle to associate with anything other than racism and sexism. I agree. And, and that is really hard to watch because I think as New Mexicans, you know, our diversity here in New Mexico is our strength and it's it's what we're accustomed to. And so to see this this body um, predominantly made up of older white men, um, really, I felt being pretty disrespectful and, and, and patronizing in some ways, um, was, it was really hard to watch. And I, I appreciate her grace and her strength and her ability to just, to just keep moving forward. And I think she's made such a point always of, of talking about how she doesn't, she doesn't just represent tribal communities as a representative, as a congresswoman, she represents all New Mexicans and wants a better life for all New Mexicans. And I think she would bring that exact same attitude to leading the Department of the Interior. And right. So she hopefully will be head of the Department of Interior. Why does, why is the Department of Interior such an important post? Yeah, it's such a wide ranging agency. It's really interesting. I mean, the, the secretary oversees agencies ranging from the Bureau of Indian Affairs to the BLM to the National Park Service and Fish and Wildlife Service. It's such a vast agency and it's so critical, I mean, to to everyone all across the United States, but especially for Westerners. And I think, you know, anyone in the secretary's position is going to be supported and guided by lots of other people as well. But to have her as the figurehead um, and to have her philosophies guide that that broader agency and all the divisions underneath it, I think would really bring some thoughtfulness to all of these various agencies that work on everything from public lands to endangered species to like, you know, so many parts of of the BIA. And when it comes to the department, the Department of Interior and uh, climate change, what's the nexus there, and why does that matter? Yeah. So, gosh, from from how these agencies like the BLM will administer policies related to everything from fossil fuel development to grazing to recreation. But also, I think it's really important that many of these agencies, there are so many people within them who have been demoralized, not just over the past four years of the Trump administration, but also by kind of like the back and forth politics that that 
just sort of goes on. Um, and I think if the Biden administration is really committed to the best available science, to allowing agencies to really delve into the science rather than just pure compliance, I think we could see some really exciting changes. And I never really thought about this until um, last year I interviewed um, William Pendley, who was at the BLM under the Trump administration. And I asked him, you know, I don't remember exactly how I phrased the question, but, you know, basically was asking him in a position of power within the BLM, what was he doing about climate change? And he he brought up a really good point at the time that it's not his job to set policies um, or carry out certain policies. It's these agencies are at the direction of what Congress is basically telling them or what the White House is telling them. So as much as Holland could have a great impact on the agencies, it's also important to think about what policies are coming, what policies and directives are coming out of the White House and also Congress. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that that <laughs> that is an interesting point, especially coming from someone I I don't think of as super thoughtful, um, <laughs> Mr. Fenley. So within New Mexico, you know, we think when we think of the Department of Interior, um, we're thinking of places like uh, the Bureau of Land Management lands, um, um, Oregon Peaks National Monument, uh, Rio Grande del Norte National Monument, um, and other lands within the state. So the Department of Interior has a has a huge impact on us specifically. Yeah, and in thinking about Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, so many, like here on the Rio Grande, the Silvery Minnow is an important part of the water conversation around um, the Rio Grande. And anywhere you have endangered species, Fish and Wildlife Service is also involved. And so, um, yeah, the Department of the Interior is just such a hugely important agency for New Mexicans, including jobs for New Mexicans. I mean, it's an agency that employs a lot of New Mexicans. And oversees oil and gas. A lot of over, a lot of oil and gas in New Mexico. Exactly. And I think I'm really interested to see what happens, you know, in over the next few months with respect to the Biden administration, because as you know, the Biden administration has issued this big pretty sweeping executive order. And one of the provisions is this temporary pause on some federal leases, on new federal leases on some federal lands. Um, the oil and gas industry has reacted to this very vehemently. Um, but, you know, here in New Mexico and, and across many parts of the West, these leases have been stockpiled. They could drill for years and still not get through all the leases they already have. But it'll be really interesting to see how how the Bureau of Land Management in particular kind of alters some of its past actions, particularly with respect to drilling around the Chaco area, where the BLM, you know, I've been told time and time again, has not done a very good job with tribal consultation or listening to local communities. Um, that Farmington field office is really focused on approving new leases and applications for permits to drill. So it'll be interesting to see if there is some kind of shift. And I think Chaco and that Farmington field office is a great 
sort of case study to see what's going to happen in the Biden administration. So just to be clear here, when <laughs> when we hear the oil and gas industry crying about these this pause in issuing leases, you're saying that that they have so many leases on hand that remain undrilled that uh, this shouldn't really impact them at all. Exactly. It shouldn't, you know, maybe in, in 10 years, five years, but the world will be a far different place in five or 10 years and the oil and gas industry will be a far different um, industry. So, um, you know, there's a lot of noise coming from the oil and gas industry, which never likes to have any sort of um, restrictions or limitations placed upon them. But um, I've never understood the reluctance of states and federal agencies to regulate them and to hold them accountable for everything from how they profit off of public resources to how they leave the public to oftentimes fund cleanup of pollution. So, I mean, I think this is a really... It's such an interesting time to be alive and to be paying attention to things like economy and the environment. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I, I think that the excuse that we often hear is that, well, oil and gas will will up and move to Texas um, if we start to regulate them, and that'll mean lo- a loss of thousands and thousands of jobs in New Mexico. Wh- why would the oil and gas industry go to Texas if the resources is here? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, as your listeners likely know, the Permian, the resources of the Permian Basin underlie Texas and a portion of New Mexico. And in Texas, you know, which doesn't really have federal lands or very, very many federal lands. So they're drilling on private lands. So they don't have some of the same issues. Whereas here in New Mexico, they have to get certain approvals at very low cost with very little oversight. And so, you know, um, there there are a lot of the resources in Texas, but they're going to drill where they can make money. And if they can still make money in New, on the New Mexico side of the border, they will continue to do that. Yeah, I'd like to come back to the the oil and gas issue um, later in our in our discussion um, because I th- there's a lot. There's a lot there and a lot going forward in terms of, you know, the solutions that we may, um, we may want to look at for, uh, for climate change, you know, here in New Mexico. Um, so I'd like to revisit that. But I, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, just kind of going back to your book and climate change in general right now, like what, what impacts are we seeing right now? Yeah, that's such a good question, especially as I'm sitting at my back patio on February 23rd and the sun is like beating down on me. (laughs) Um, So since the 1970s, New Mexico has experienced a more than two degree Fahrenheit increase in temperature. And that's, you know, the the average annual temperature. So we're always going to have fluctuations. There's always going to be a cold snap or um, a dry year or a wet year. But looking broadly across New Mexico, many of the impacts that we see include things like decreased snowpack and a shorter snowpack season, a longer wildfire season and more severe wildfires with um, bigger wildfires as well. we have a longer growing growing season, but we have less water certainty. 
So um, as lots of your listeners in Taos know, we are a snowpack-driven water system. Um, when it comes to irrigating, you know, people for centuries have relied on the pattern of seasons, the reliable pattern of seasons. But now we're seeing less snow melt that comes oftentimes much earlier. And, um, you know, here in the middle Rio Grande Valley last year, the irrigation season was had to be shut down about a month earlier. So here we too. also see things. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah I mean, it's. It, and what's crazy about last year is we had a close to normal snowpack from November to February, and we still had historically low runoff and, you know, terrible drying down here in this section and that early, early end to irrigation season. So some of the other impacts that we see are more extreme heat events which, you know, are particularly scary to think about for our neighbors down in southern New Mexico, um, where it's already pretty hot in the summer. Add a few degrees onto that and your swamp cooler doesn't work and your cinder block, you know, frame construction house is like an oven. Um, we also see the spread of certain infectious diseases, um, you know, whether that's a spore-driven um, disease like valley fever or something like West Nile. Um, we're seeing increases and changes in those patterns. So it's like a wide range of, of public health and environmental issues that have all sorts of impacts on communities, whether you're in a rural area or a big city. You know, going back to this this issue last year with snow, um, I mean, it was pretty profound up here. We had a fairly normal snowpack, and and yet the the water the the river the rivers were basically dry by June. The irrigation season was extremely short, um, and yet we had this normal snowpack. Like, what what happened? It's really last year was really like the poster child for climate change. I mean, I think we'll continue to see more years like that, where even if we're close to normal, there the system is just so thirsty. The soils are dry and pulling water. Um, streams and reservoirs have higher evaporation rates the warmer it is. Um, the forests need more water. The crops need more water. It's just this... Um, it's this warming cycle, this warming trend that we are in, that regardless of what the natural cycle might be, whether it's a La Nina or El Nino, whether we have a good monsoon or not, those warmer temperatures are just driving dryness in the in the Southwest. Yeah, one of the things that um, we've been helping some um, irrigators do at the Talos Land Trust is to actually uh, do the acequia cleaning in the fall so that they can be ready for the, the spring runoff because it's coming earlier. And, and there was an issue the past couple of years where the, the water came early, the acequias weren't cleaned, and um, they weren't ready to, to, to receive that water. And so um, it was, you know, in terms of farming, it was quote-unquote wasted water. It was a lost opportunity. That is so interesting. I, that's really interesting. I, I would wonder... Um, what other acequias are looking at switching that cleaning to fall? Yeah, and it's been um, 
yeah, it'd be interesting to see what what's going on in the rest of the state. Like it's kind of been, um, you know, people are reluctant to to change, um, but some folks definitely were willing to do that, and and I think then um, we're able to at least take advantage of it last year for the first time. And, and so we saw this fall, um, the acequia cleaning happen in, I believe it was like November. I don't know where we're at with snowpack right now, just sticking with that issue, but, um, it seems like we had a pretty good round of storms last week. And, um, I was snowshoeing, you know, I'm snowshoeing up high about once a, once a week. And it seems like we've gotten a decent amount of snowpack, um, but overall, this winter has been drier, is, is right? Yeah, it's been drier. And Susan Montoya Bryan with the Associated Press had a really interesting story this week that was looking at um, like what kind of snow that was that fell in these recent storms because it was so cold. It was like a drier snow. Right, I noticed that. Um, yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. And you know, we're just in this we're in this situation where. You know, if you remember, 2018 was awful. That that winter, 2017, 2018 was super bad. Um, spring, summer, and fall of 2018 were really rough on rivers and <laughs> reservoirs. 2019, we had a good snowpack. We had a great runoff here in the Rio Grande, like in the middle Rio Grande, like a bunch of restoration sites got nice and flooded. It was really, really beautiful spring. And then Still, the river dried in the summer and fall. Um, 2020, you know, just brought in. And here we are in 2021 with um, reservoirs across the state are way below capacity. I mean, Elephant View is, I haven't looked in a couple of weeks. It's surely 10% full, maybe even in the single, yeah, in the single digits somewhere. Um you know, Abiquiu's been low, Elvado. We don't have a real savings account going into this water year. So if we see really bad runoff again, plus low reservoirs, um, plus in lots of places we've, we've uh, over-pumped our groundwater. Like this year gives me, this year gives me real pause and makes me very nervous. Oh, it does. Like you're really kind of, are you feeling like you're a little bit on edge? I do. I mean... Like today, like I mentioned, it's like a beautiful, super warm day in Albuquerque and kind of looking around my yard and prioritizing like I'm not going to grow a garden this year. You know, I water from my domestic water supply from my hose. So I'm not going to have a water a garden this year. And I'm looking to see like, OK, there's certain mature trees in the yard that I have to make sure survive. And like what else might go? in the yard. Um, because this year really, really does make me very, very nervous. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I think, you know, speaking of that nervousness, I, you know, one of the themes that keep coming, kept coming around to me in your book, um, and we're talking to Laura Paskus, uh, the author of At the Precipice, New Mexico's Changing Climate. Um, one of the things that kind of grabbed me about your book, but also you've mentioned this in your articles and on, uh, on, on KUNM and PBS over the, over the years is the um, kind of the emotional hit that you take um, seeing all of this happen. I mean, that's, and I guess I'm really curious about that. It's something that really resonates with me um, because I, I'm feeling that also. Um, 
and you know, of course, we're both parents, and so we worry about our children, but I think we also have this kind of ache for what's happening with the land. And in your book, you talked about how your your father's funeral in 2013 kind of provoked an epiphany of sorts about your relationship with the land. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that or tie all those threads together, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, whether you're like a water manager or a science writer, I feel like there's been this push in the last however many decades that, you know, if you want to be taken seriously and and be considered like a reliable source of information, you better only be super professional and uh, stoic about it. You you shouldn't exhibit feelings about the issues you cover, and you shouldn't um, you shouldn't be open with your readers or your audience or other people about your feelings about these like professional issues. And I think early on in my career, when I was trying very hard to be, you know, taken seriously as a journalist, I maybe followed that line of thought for a few minutes. But I think it's just, it's not realistic. Like, I can give you all the scientific facts about climate change or about any particular environmental issue, but it's only fair to readers to also be honest about how some of this stuff makes me feel or makes my sources feel or makes people who are experiencing these changes in the West feel. And I think that's part of why, like, for me, and I know that you're like this too, Jim, I think we share this, you know, our solace and our joy is very tied to being outdoors and to being active in the outdoors and moving through landscapes and being a part of of landscapes that we love and covering climate change. I was start. I'm old enough now that I've been seeing these lands, vast stretches of our landscapes change, whether through fire because of forest die offs, because of warming or big changes to the Rio Grande. And I feel like it's only fair to share with people like this feels rotten and it feels hard. And sometimes it's, it's hard to feel hopeful and happy and excited when you see all these changes and you understand why they're happening. And so few people in positions of power are willing to make the changes that we need to make. And so, yeah, in 2013, my dad died. And, you know, I grew up in a, a had a big extended family and you know there were always there were always old people passing away always going to these you know uh funerals um as a kid but my dad dying was the first time like someone in my immediately immediate family passed away and the the process of his wake and funeral and burial was incredible and and awful and I sobbed through the whole thing and um but it was this this ritual and this this process that I kept thinking oh my gosh if we go through all of this and I have all of these feelings for one person there needs to be some kind of accounting for how we're all feeling about these huge landscape scale changes that we're seeing and I don't know what the answer is I don't know how we mourn 
and grieve or find hope, but I know that we have to. Yeah, I think about that, particularly in terms of um, the Hamas Mountains. I think it's it's probably safe to say that both you and I kind of have a, a love affair with the Hamas Mountains in a way, or at least a fascination um, with them. And for people who are listening to this who are non-New Mexicans, could you could you kind of describe the Hamas? Like, where are they and what are they and why do they matter? Yeah, so it's this mountain range that's sort of northwest of Albuquerque, and um, the Jemez River, which originates there, is a tributary of the Rio Grande. It's There's all kinds of cool stuff up there. There's, you know, the Valles Caldera, which is this volcanic um, landscape, um, conifer forests, aspen forests. Um, but since the mid-1990s, the Jemez Mountains have experienced more and more frequent and bigger and bigger wildfires. And kind of the, the, the one that sort of knocked every box off was the 2011 Los Conchas fire, which was a, a, a scary dry year. And this fire just blew up like crazy. It was like in the first less than 24 hours, it burned 47,000 acres, which is just like unprecedented in the modern record for fast firefighters, fires, wildfires. And, you know, kind of what happened after Las Conchas is that fire was so intense that in about 30,000 acres of the total 156,000 acres of that fire, it burned so hot that it destroyed that conifer seed source. And so there's like this 33,000 acre area up there where that had been a, a pretty dense conifer forest in most places is just kind of gone now. And some parts are, some parts, aspens and locusts and oaks are coming back in those areas. And some places are still just kind of like, almost like grasslands. And so it's kind of crazy because on that eastern edge of the Jemez, you're overlooking the Rio Grande Valley. And there's some, you know, big spots up there where you can stand up there and imagine what it was like before the fire where you were, you know, surrounded in a dense conifer forest. Now you're looking out over the edge into the Rio Grande Valley. You can see the river. You can see Coach D Reservoir. And you can really think about how our watersheds change when something like this happens. So the Hamas are like, I've heard, um, I think it was Craig Allen, a USGS scientist who spent his career working on issues in the Hamas, like kind of like the Hamas is a laboratory of uh, what we're seeing happen with climate change. And, you know, even before the fire, like I, I've been going backpacking in the Hamas since um, particularly Bandelier National Monument um, in that area, the Dome Wilderness, you know, since the 80s. And I've noticed just like, like even before the fires, I noticed there was a crazy shift in vegetation and erosion um, just between like, like, let's say like 1989 to, you know, 2005 or something. A lot less vegetation and a lot and a, and, a, and a big shift and 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 just a lot of erosion that was happening up there as the as the vegetation switched. So there's there's these big fires that seem to be altering 
eco, entire ecosystems. But then there's also these these other climate impacts that are um, that are hitting hitting up there. Yeah, and what's crazy is like because it's so much warmer <laughs> than it was, and when they're in combination with with sort of long drought stretches, the the vegetation is changing in so many places, and it's crazy when you look at. Um, there's conifer die-offs up there, but there's also, you can see areas where like junipers aren't surviving anymore. And I think of juniper as like the most resilient tree out there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I just, and I think just, you know, speaking of the emotional personal impact is when you see those changes within your lifetime, it's kind of, I don't know, to me, there's like, I think what I thought about is there's, there's something biblical about it, right? There's, it's it's so big. Like, how do I comprehend this? Yeah, I mean, and I think it's crazy because, like, I've only lived, I'm not from New Mexico. I've only lived here since 96. And I feel like I've seen these big changes, and I have all these feelings about them, and I cannot imagine what it must be like to be, like, somebody who who's from the Pueblo of Santa Clara, who, you know, his family has been there for a hundred generations and seen vast changes. And I just, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. I think the changes are happening so quickly now too. I don't know how, if people in Taos experience this, but when we had in September that big migratory bird die off where like millions of birds in the Southwest died over the course of, you know, a, a week or two. Um, and you, you just literally had like bird carcasses. Um, I mean, these changes are just happening so fast and there's no looking away from them, even if you wanted to. Yeah, I think that's right. And one of the things that was shocking, yeah, we did have, you know, see the bird die off up here. And for anybody who doesn't know, they're in, in mid-September of 2020, um, suddenly all kinds of different species, migratory birds um, that were on their way south um, that are usually not on the ground started appearing on the ground. And and, and I don't know, would, would you say millions died? Yeah, I think that's what the that estimate was. Yeah, and and what the researchers have found so far is that most of them were emaciated; they were starving um, due to a lack of insects, because most of them were in insectivores. And uh, you know, some folks are saying that well, the huge fires that were in California, Colorado, those kind of things last last summer. Um, that decimated millions and millions of acres of, of forest land um, had such an impact on in, in insect species that these, these birds didn't have anything to eat. So you have this like con- confluence of all these climate crises and then the birds make it really like right in your face. <laughs> yeah, I know that, that was a crazy story to, you know, Algernon Demasa down at the Las Cruces, newspaper I think was the first person to write about it and then just covering that was like so shocking to get these reports from all over the state but it was like weirdly heartening to me how New Mexicans reacted like people wanted to know about it people wanted to share their stories like people saw these birds and they were making connections and 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 understanding that 
we have done things to our planet that are not okay. Do you think that that may have been a a wake up call for some for some folks? I do think it was, and I think like birds are such a birds are such a, like an interesting species for that because you don't have to go far away. You can watch the birds in your neighborhood. You can see birds in a city. Um, that I feel like even people who don't consider themselves like outdoors people or nature people or, or they have some connection with birds, even if it's a small connection. And so I think that, you know, if it had been like a mass die off of a species that maybe not many people see regularly, but for it to be birds, I think, I think was a wake up call for a lot of people. You, you mentioned a few minutes ago that You've been here since the mid-90s in New Mexico. And so, you know, how, what are other people who've been here longer noticing and seeing? And, you know, you go out and talk to a lot of these people. And so I'm curious, like, what are you, what are you hearing? So I think that, I think I was thinking recently about how it was probably 10 years ago, maybe a little bit longer. Yeah, a little bit longer than 10 years ago. I was out doing a story related to Mount Taylor and ended up having the opportunity to visit with the tribal chairman out at Disney. And at that time, I wasn't covering climate change regularly. I was kind of like, maybe every once in a while I would do a story about climate change, but it still seemed at that point that was something kind of in the future. And um, for, the, for the Pueblo of Zuni, that point more than 10 years ago they were already seeing how how the climate had changed how their water had changed how the seasons had changed how their crops were changing and so i think that you know for pueblo communities in particular which is you know maybe where i talk to more people um like they've been noticing these changes for a long time and and they've known for a long time that 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 they were already happening you know scientists were warning us of these things that were going to happen as it got warmer and into the future but those communities already knew hi This is Christine Ortez, Executive Director of the Taos Land Trust. For 30 years, we've been keeping working lands in working hands. To do that, we need your help. Please donate at tauslandtrust.org slash donate. Thank you. We're talking to Laura Paskus, an environmental journalist based in Albuquerque and the author of the new book, At the Precipice, New Mexico's Changing Climate. So, okay, so we've talked a little bit, we've talked about the birds and, and we've talked about the snowpack up north. Um, how about in other parts of the state? Like what is Doña Ana County, um, the Las Cruces area in the southern part of state, very different than, than the Taos area? What are they looking at? Yeah, so they're looking at challenges on the Rio Grande as well. Um, and, you know, they're at the, they're at the bottom of the system <laughs> Um, at least the New Mexico part of the system. Um, so water challenges, you know, also seeing groundwater wells dropping in that area. Um, but I think one of the things that that concerns me the most for southern New Mexico is this idea of the 
rising temperatures over time, but also extreme heat events. And I, I never really thought about this because I don't live in Doña Ana County, but somebody with the city of Las Cruces was talking to me a couple of years ago about how, you know, the construction codes for, um, you know, your, whether it's county or city or whatever, you know, a lot of people live in cinder block and frame homes and most people still have swamp coolers and above a certain once your house reaches above a certain temperature, like your swamp cooler just doesn't really work anymore. Oh, really? Yeah. It, it only works up until a certain, like the system only works up to a certain temperature. And so, you know, if you're, if it's 105 or 110 outside and you're trying to run your swamp cooler, there is no way you can cool your house to, to a point where it's comfortable or safe to be inside. And so thinking about the thousands of people who, who live in homes that are unsafe in the summertime is really overwhelming and scary to think about, um, especially now that so many of us now with the pandemic spend almost all of our time <laughs> right. at home. Um, like there, I know for me, like in the wintertime, I love being able to go into work because I could turn my heat way down and, you know, have heat at work or the same with um, cooling in the summer. But um, so that makes me really worried. The rising temperatures in general and then these extreme heat events are, are so unhealthy for communities and people along, you know, the southern border there. And Las Cruces is one of our fastest growing areas, right? Yeah, I mean, and a lot, you know, it's Santa Teresa and that whole area is very, um, very busy growing. Um, and it's really, it's really worrisome to think about because then you also don't want to be thinking about people having to have air conditioning because that requires more electricity, which contributes to greenhouse gas emissions. So, um yeah, that's a that's a pretty overwhelming issue to think about. It is, and I think, you know, that ties in with a, a concern I guess I have of, uh, you know, with rising sea levels, we're going to see people along the coast needing to move. Uh, you know, I've seen estimates of 50 million, 100 million, 170 million uh, Americans potentially on the move over the next 50 to 100 years, and. And there, you know, there just doesn't seem to be any planning being done for any sort of mass migration of people, right? So all of these issues of climate change, you know, the heat, the water, um, all of these things that impact New Mexico, how does that impact development? Like, how, how do we, if people start coming here from the coasts, how do we handle that? Yeah, we have to handle it thoughtfully and graciously, I think. Two things that humans are not always good at being thoughtful and gracious, especially when it has to do with with new people coming in. Um, you know, I think nobody likes to think about this and nobody likes to hear it, but I think that we need to start learning how to live with so much less. Um, we don't need giant houses. We don't need, we, we need to, we need to pare down so that we can be nimble and so that we can 
be communities of mutual aid for one another. Um, and I just, that's going to be a really, that's going to be a really tricky thing to think about because we do have limited resources in New Mexico and we have limited water. But I think if we were thoughtful, we could think about ways to accommodate larger population centers, but it would require thinking a lot more carefully about how we use our resources and how we build our cities, um, how we take care of one another, um, how we protect our resources at the same time that we're trying to support human communities. And we are definitely not there as Americans and, and planning for any kind of climate migration. You're absolutely right on that. One of the things you point out in your book is um, that uh, in New Mexico, you know, we, we have our cities and then we have our, our, our agriculture as water users. And, and you point out that I, I think it's what 80, 85 percent of the water use in New Mexico is, is agriculture. The cities are more efficient. So is there something that we need to be looking at with our agriculture to reduce our water usage? Yeah. And I know this is like a really hard conversation for us to have as New Mexicans, but we do need to think about what crops we're growing and where and when, um, and thinking about our water systems and how we share water. I know in northern New Mexico there is a long tradition of shortage sharing, and I think we need to implement those lessons across the board, but we do need to have some honest conversations about ag, especially in a state that has such high food insecurity rates. I think we can't, we have to acknowledge the fact that agriculture uses so much water and yet so many people in New Mexico are hungry. So what, what are some of the big changes and small changes that we need to be making and looking at moving forward? Yeah, and we're definitely going to over the course of the year on this podcast, talk to some people who are working on on those issues. So it is, you know, it's February 23rd, like I said, when we're recording this podcast, the New Mexico State Legislature is in session. What's happening as far as climate change and oil and gas and <laughs> um, and and the and dealing with some of these issues in that 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 are that were that are being battled out in the New Mexico State Legislature right now? Yeah, so this year, um, Representative Sansbury and Representative Rubio have introduced, can't remember the bill number, but like the Climate Solutions Act, which, which includes like a really wide array of, um, of, of different provisions, including codifying the governor's emissions reduction goals so that they can't just be wiped away by a future governor, um, supporting frontline communities that would be transitioning away from fossil fuels and figuring out how to support those workers in those communities, um, setting up a, like a task force, um, really wide ranging, really pretty exciting legislation and conversations. And I was, again, similar to the hearing this morning for Representative Holland, so disheartened to hear some of the comments by um, not just the oil and gas industry who, who, who provided public comment, because you expect them to, to comment in their, their own good, right? 
but um, comments from some of the legislators who either don't understand climate change or are unwilling to understand. Some of the comments reminded me of conversations that we were having more than 10 years ago during the Richardson administration when the Richardson administration was trying to move forward on some climate change initiatives. And people kept saying things like, well, New Mexico can't do much. And even if we make these, you know, it's always framed in terms of sacrifices. If we make these sacrifices and cut our emissions and do something about climate change, well, India and China are going to keep polluting. And I heard that same, same argument um, yesterday morning. And it's just really, I don't know if they know that that argument works on people and so they keep using it. <laughs> or, um, But uh, the unwillingness of many legislators to think about a better future for New Mexico is really just, it's such a huge bummer and I think really does a disservice to people, especially farmers. You know, farmers, like we're talking this year, um, are, are facing a bad water year. The Elephant View Irrigation District has already told people they should anticipate the possibility of a zero allocation in the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District. They're asking people to think twice about planting this year. And yet, you know, people say they support farmers at the same time they're unwilling to do anything about climate change. And I just think, oh, you've really got it wrong there, buddy. Right, right, exactly. Well, and it, to me, it seems like some missed opportunities, right? Like, you know, we've talked for my whole life about diversifying New Mexico's economy, you know, and I'm nearing 51 years old. And I think dealing with climate change offers us a really big opportunity to deal with, um, de sorry, dealing with climate change offers us a big opportunity to, to shift our economy, economy to something that's more stable and more growth, you know, growth oriented in a positive way. And, um, it, so there seems to me, I mean, do you think there's a lost opportunity there if we don't? Oh, my gosh, yes. And I think everybody, including the oil and gas industry itself, sees the writing on the wall that, that greenhouse gas emissions are a problem, that regulations need to increase, that economies worldwide need to shift away from a dependence on fossil fuels. All of these things... All of these things are happening. If you look at the global forecast for the oil and gas industry, McKinsey, the consulting firm McKinsey, put one out last year. They anticipate that the industry will continue to see slight booms and continued busts and, and anticipate through like 2030 that the industry is just going to continue on a steady decline. And so if global analysts see that, I, I can only imagine how hard it is for decision makers. I mean, I, I do empathize with how hard it is to make these big changes, but we've been putting it off for so long that we're still in a crummy situation as, as the industry itself gets worse, as the climate gets worse. I mean... We should have acted 20 or 30 years ago, but God, can we just please stop putting it off? Yeah, can we just do it now? Yeah, it makes me think of the, uh, what's the old saying of when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago? What's the second best time right now? Right, exactly. And there are so many 
I mean, there's so many opportunities in New Mexico. And yes, oil and gas jobs tend to pay really well. But most people who work in the industry do not have long careers in the industry. They have health problems. The communities have health problems. I mean, the cost of the industry, we so rarely talk about what the industry costs people and families and communities. Give, give us some examples of that. Yeah. So I'm just thinking like of if you work in the oil and gas fields, you might you might be pulling in like $100,000 a year. But in general, you might have that job a few years. You're not going to have that job for the course of your entire career. I can't imagine very many oil field workers have retirement plans um, or sort of long, long-term stable careers. Um, I'm sure industry executives do, but like oil field workers, um, these are very dangerous jobs. The physical the physical part very dangerous, um, but also breathing in fumes, exposure to toxic chemicals, um, families. You know, from from what I've heard from some people, it's it's a challenging line of work for families. It's oftentimes men who have these jobs who are traveling away from home. Um, the communities that are close to oil and gas wells, you know, suffer from exposure to chemicals from flaring, water pollution. Um, then there's accidents, whether that spills or explosions. Then you think about the, like, the long-term environmental impacts as well. And then the greenhouse gas emissions and how that's affecting the Earth's atmosphere and climate. I mean, th- those are a lot of risks and a lot of expenses um, for you know however many people who earn enormous profits off this industry, you know, magnitudes more suffer from the impacts of the industry. Yeah. And and I I think, you know, going back to your statement about we should have done something 20 years ago, but we, but we, why can't we just do it now is I think one of my concerns going forward is with the oil and gas industry collapsing and with climate change, um, you know, gaining steam, so to speak. At some point, we're going to be in an emergency situation where we need to make big, difficult choices extremely fast. And they're going to be really painful. We, we, we could implement those, begin to implement those changes slowly and less painful now. But the longer we wait, um, the more painful making those changes are going to be. And I mean everything from like building codes to, to oil and gas. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I I wonder sometimes if other people our age are like realizing, oh my gosh, like these these decisions need to happen and we need to make them and we need to make the we need to steer these these big changes and and for whatever reasons we're just failing to do that. Um, you know, I I would assume it's been many years since I've seen your kids but I would imagine they're similar to my kid. And like, they're kind of, they're kind of over grown ups and not in that like way that we were when we were younger. <laughs> they're like over grown ups in that like, wow, you guys can't even control sh- school shootings. Never mind, you know, runaway climate change. Like, get out of our way. You're useless. <laughs> oh, I, I could not agree more. You know, I have, I have a 17 year old daughter. Well, you know, same age as, as yours and they knew each other when they were little. Um, and then, you know, the two boys who are 13 
And um, I, I could not agree more. Like the 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 conversations I have with them is 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 just exactly what you were saying. Like they are they are over us, and they're like they don't have necessarily faith. They definitely don't have faith in our grandparents to deal with anything. And I I noticed, you know, my daughter uh, after Biden was elected you know, her attitude was not as thrilled as mine. You know, she was she was definitely like, okay, this is a huge improvement from Trump. Um, she loves Kamala Harris, uh, those kind of things. But she, um, she was also like, you know, basically like people in their 70s and 80s, like we can't really trust them to do, to do the right thing. We have the same conversations in our household. <laughs> <laughs> the other conversation my son and I had, the one of my boys, Elon specifically, the other night was he was really expressing at age 13 how he feels overwhelmed by everything that's going on. And he kind of almost to a certain extent doesn't want to know. He's like, man, I, I shouldn't be having to deal with uh, at age 13, the things that you guys couldn't fix. That was really a punch in the face. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's so, it's so upsetting to think of how their lives are, are, I mean, so different. Their futures are, potential futures are so different. Um, and their outlooks, it's, it's really, it's really disheartening. It, it yeah, it is. It is. And, and, so, so going from disheartening to hope, <laughs> is, is there any space for hope? Like, is there room for that? And, and what, what does having hope depend on? I, I, keep, I keep saying this, and I really believe it's true, that, that I, there's, despite all of those challenges that we've been talking about for the last hour, there is no place I would rather be facing the future than here in New Mexico. We, we have... You know, so many examples of communities that have that have survived climate changes, that have survived, you know, vast historical disruptions. Um, we have we have examples for how to live sustainably in the desert if we would pay attention to them. Um, we have stories passed down along countless generations of how to survive and thrive and take care of the landscapes and the waters and wildlife and one another. So there's like that part of being New Mexican that makes me feel very hopeful that we know how to deal with problems and crises. But the other part of being a New Mexican is there are some exceptions to be sure, but I think by and large, like New Mexicans care about one another and we want to take care of one another and we want to support one another even if we have some differences i think that i think that we most of us know each other and we want right we're small enough right yeah and we want want a better future we love new mexico we love there's so many things that we love about this place and one another but that's where i find hope and and that's why you know, there's, there's no place in the world like New Mexico and, and the people of New Mexico are extraordinary. I could not agree more. Um, so what, what's, what's next for you? Like, what do you, what's, what's, what does the next year or two look like for you? That is such a good question. <laughs> I 
don't know. Um, <laughs> these days, I work at New Mexico PBS, and we have a monthly show that looks at different environmental issues around the state. The past year and a half or so, I've been focused really intently on covering the military's contamination of groundwater with PFAS, the sort of toxic forever chemicals. Um, and that's going to be and um, continue to be kind of an emerging issue in New Mexico. But I also, you know, like today I have, you know, these open documents on my computer where I'm like working on a story about PFAS and working on a story about climate change and another story about PFAS. But I do have one open document where I'm trying desperately to write a poem. So I'm hoping, Oh wow. I'm hoping that not everything is bad news. Yeah. I mean, I think this year is, this year is going to be really interesting politically and climatically. <laughs> so, um, it'll be an interesting year. Yeah, for sure. We, um, yeah, we should definitely revisit this conversation in about a year, year and a half and see, see, because it's going to be a big year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I always, I just, I know these conversations seem so depressing and I just, I know that people in Taos and people listening, you know, already have so many connections to the landscape and the waters and one another. But I really think that that's where we find hope and that's definitely where we find joy. And that's, you know, that's all very, very good and worthwhile. Yeah. On that note, um, we've been talking to longtime environmental journalist, Laura Paskus. Um, you can watch her work on uh, New Mexico PBS, um, New Mexico In Focus, Our Land, New Mexico, Environmental Past, Present, and Future, and her new book, At the Precipice, New Mexico's Changing Climate from the University of New Mexico Press. Yeah, Laura, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jim. It was awesome to catch up with you. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell, edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.taoslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.